exchange fees run from typically about a thousand to fifteen hundred, mm-hmm. all in. Wow, um, all in. That's a steal. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. just it's um, you know volume, volume, volume. Sure, <laughs> around yeah. here. Well, hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investment strategies and real estate-related topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Matt Williams. I'm here with my co-host, Nicholas Cook. Our guest today is Toya Butler with Butler Exchange Group to discuss one of the most powerful tools we as an investors have in our investment tool bag, the 1031 Exchange. Toya, welcome. I'm excited to have you here as a guest today. Before we get going into the details, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into the 1031 Exchange industry. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here today. Uh, How did I get into it? By accident. I say when I came out of law school back in 1982, there wasn't such a thing as facilitating tax-deferred exchanges, so I had no expectation that I would end up in this work. And I'm truly a real estate attorney, but have been doing the work now since 92. Long story short, by accident. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's what happens with a lot of us, right? Probably so. Yeah. Good. Well, let, let's get in right into the nuts and bolts here. I mean, obviously, this podcast is specific to investors in the Western United States, regional, um, but investing um, requires tools. And as I mentioned, the 1031 is a really great tool. So can you describe what a 1031 exchange is and, you know, to the investors that are just starting out or thinking about maybe taking their first property and exchanging that? Right, right. So I'll start first by describing the kind of properties that qualify, and then I'll explain what the exchange itself is. Uh, the properties that qualify qualify for 1031 treatment are residential rentals, commercial buildings, and land held for investment, ag land, timber land, that kind of thing. So if uh, one of the listeners has rental properties, commercial buildings that they own, or investment land, then that's the type of properties that qualify for 1031. So then what is 1031? 1031 is a section out of the tax code. Frankly, it's been in the Internal Revenue Code 99 years now. Wow. And wow. Yeah, truly. And for good reason. Uh, 1031, if uh, one of our listeners has a property that has gain in it, they bought the rental house for 200000 they're selling it for 300000 They pay tax on the gain. If they don't want to pay tax on the gain, then they can utilize 1031 exchange to defer the payment of the tax on the gain. There are a lot of rules, and primarily they have to go out and buy replacement real estate. And then the gain in the old property through the use of 1031, the gain in the old now transfers over, is sitting in the new property. There's a second tax benefit, the depreciation schedule in the old property. That, too, moves over to the new property. So in its best form, 1031 permits the taxpayer to defer payment on the gain now and to defer recapture of the depreciation deductions that were taken in the original property. So a double tax benefit. Tax bill doesn't go away. It's waiting in that new property. But it enables clients to go from a small single family to a duplex, building their real estate portfolio. It's a wonderful technique. When it works, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah, absolutely. So in lieu of paying the taxes now, you get to essentially utilize those tax dollars to help build wealth and for a larger down payment on the on the second property. That's right. It allows our client, our younger clients like 1031 to leverage into the bigger and better replacement property, building wealth through investing in real estate. Right. Now, I think a, a key point here, too, because there are different types of real estate investments, some flippers may want to use this, but that's a little bit different, right? Right. So our flippers um, do belong to investment groups. They consider themselves investors. Unfortunately, that's not the IRS definition of investment property. And so f- when a client would sell a property they bought to fix to sell, the IRS definition of that is its inventory and taxable. 1031 is only available for investment properties and, again, as I said, rental in particular. So a flip property would not have had the rental history that would bring it within 1031's uh, definition. Okay. And are there some timelines to that? Is there a certain period of time the IRS recognizes the difference? So the question about a flip project, well, how long do they have to hold before they could consider it investment? We don't have a definitive answer from the IRS, but uh, I believe, personally, that if somebody were to buy a property to fix it up, turn it into a rental, probably just one year. 
after a year of rental history, depreciation deductions taken for that one year, I think they are now eligible to uh, exchange out of that rental into now, mind you, another rental. They can buy a project if they want to fix up again to add value, but that new property also would initially have to be a rental for a period of time. And would I be accurate in saying a lot of um, the gray areas or areas where we don't have direct and specific guidance from the IRS, um, the IRS will kind of default to intent? Intent is key in 1031 exchanges, but it isn't the only factor, but intent is critical. Um, So, for example... When a client buys a replacement property, they'll sometimes say, well, how long do I have to hold it before I can sell it? My answer to that is when they buy that replacement property, it is supposed to be their intent to hold indefinitely. Mm. Now, the IRS hasn't said anything beyond that, but it's supposed to be their intent to hold indefinitely. Well, I think after they've held a year (laughs) as rental again, we could go with another 1031 exchange. It isn't common that people make those kinds of quick moves. Uh, Typically, there's a two- to four- to five-year period before they're ready to Mm -hmm. shift again. But intent is critical, and their intent to hold indefinitely. If they plan to buy something that they're going to sell very shortly – it might get us back into inventory. I'm going to give kind of generalized answers today. Um, every client calling us, we would have to ask a number of questions to dig a little deeper to get to the right answer for that caller. But right. um, So my answer is a little bit generalized for purposes of time. <laughs> Complete, we completely understand that. I mean, every situation is quite different, and I think that you know that's why we have the benefit of having you on the show, because then our audience will have resources and can call you directly because we're obviously not the professionals there. So obviously we talked a little bit about some holding timelines. What are the timelines within a 1031 exchange that we we should really be aware of? Right. The deadlines in 1031 are just critical. They are carved in stone. So the deadlines start to run when the sale of the relinquished property closes. Not when it's listed, not when a buyer is under contract, but at closing. And when that sale closes, and I should add this, with an exchange company's paperwork in the closing, when that sale of the relinquished closes, the good deadline, 180 days, to close on the replacement property. Okay. That's almost six months. It's not quite. It's 180 days carved in stone. And then there's a second deadline, and this one I've come to calling the bad deadline. The bad deadline They only get the first 45 days of the 180 to identify replacement property. We'll talk about identification a bit more here, I'm sure, but really they are stuck at day 45, midnight, with whatever list they've given us, and they have to buy from that list. So it's a short time frame, only 45 days, to come up with this list of replacement properties. So just to be clear for the audience, um, I'm selling property A. I have the $100,000 in gain that we're talking about here. Um, I'm not going to take possession of that $100,000. I'm going to have the 1031 accommodator uh, involved in the process. Those funds are then going to be moved at some point in the future into a new property. And the two deadlines that you're talking about, the bad deadline, 45 days to identify uh, up to three properties typically, which we can talk a little bit more about, um, that we might be buying, and then 180 days to close on one of those identified properties. That's right. And the way that money moves around is that with the exchange company's paperwork in the closing of the relinquished, it causes the title company to send the sale proceeds to the exchange company rather than to the taxpayer, as the IRS calls these people. We try never to use that word in our office. (laughs) But um, causes a title company to send the cash to the exchange company. And now when our client is under contract for replacement property, we prepare yet again some more paperwork for that closing. And it's our paperwork in that closing causes us to deliver their money into the closing. So there's two jobs for the exchange company. One, the paperwork in the closings, each of them, and then we do have to hold their money between those two transactions. So that's a fundamental of what we do in this office. That's what we're paid for anyway. Perfect. So it would be safe to say, um, you know, you should really look at this as a third party holding your funds until you close on the replacement property. That's right, a third party. And there's a case out there where somebody tried just to leave the money in escrow. And that does not qualify for 1031 purposes. That was disallowed. They literally have to have somebody in addition to escrow in this as part of the team to make it work properly. Perfect. Okay. And, you know, obviously, with the 
timeline restrictions, we also have a like-for-like like restriction, which has really changed in recent years, right? So can you talk a little bit about what is like-for-like like and some of those modifications? Great question. And frankly, the best rule we have, honestly. Um, I would say there haven't actually been any changes in, around that like-for-like. Like. It's just our understanding has um, stretched. And so I said up top that uh, 1031 is for rental properties, commercial properties, and land held for investment. Well, what is like kind? Any of the three. So when we get on the phone talking to folks about uh, what do they want to buy, and they're thinking that if they're selling a three-bedroom, two-bath, oh, they have to buy another three-bedroom, two-bath, and that's not what they wanted. Well, the good news is that's not the rule. They can definitely go out and buy a duplex or a mobile home park or an RV park or a hotel or a gas station or whatever they want, frankly, as long as it's investment real estate. So any of the three, land, commercial, rental, for any of the three, rental, commercial, land. And so what is a beautiful thing about 1031 is how very different the replacement property is and still is considered like kind. We can buy almost anything they want as long as they're willing to follow certain rules. And our clients, when we're doing an exchange for them, yes, they're doing the exchange so that they don't have to pay these taxes, but they're as strong a reason is that they really want something different as replacement property. Um, they're just very dramatically wanting, for personal reasons, something different, or for business reasons. They're looking for a different type of replacement property, and we can buy almost anything they want if they'll follow some rules. Yeah, so if they wanted to change their investment strategy from single-family homes to apartment buildings or apartment buildings to commercial or uh, any of those um, strategies, they could certainly do that. Yeah, they certainly can. Of course, most of our clients stay with what they know when they're comfortable with, and they don't shift out of a particular category very often, but they certainly can. If they want to make a go commercial out of residential, it's absolutely like kind. So they, that's just one of the best features of 1031 is that broad definition truly of like kind. Yeah, you know, Toya, that's a good point. You know, a lot of my clients do stay with what they know. I mean, obviously, there's some deviation there, single family to multifamily, because you have some um, single family homes, and you see the multifamily opportunity as far as return on your investment. But also, you know, we're finding a lot, especially what's happening in our markets here recently, and, you know, in the Western United States, they're shifting into different geographical areas. So are there any restrictions geographically? No, actually, it's uh, U.S. tax code. So we can reinvest for them anywhere in the United States, including Guam. Oh, wow. <laughs> We've done a couple of those. Um, so <laughs> we can go all across the country. And frankly, in this office, all day long, every day, we're working outside of um, our local geography, that's for sure. One thing I'll mention, too, about, yes, they want to go to multiple doors. That's just great. Another scenario we see quite frequently with the land, somebody who's selling land believing they have to buy land. Well, no. Why would they do that? In most cases, there's no benefit. They really are often looking for income stream. So we can take them out of the sale of land into multifamily, single family, something that's going to cash flow. So our land people don't very often stay with land. They're looking for something different now. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So, uh, Toya, this is a lot of great information. I really appreciate you being here with us. Um, this is obviously a popular topic in real estate and a wonderful vehicle for wealth creation. Um, so, obviously, like we're talking about the you know capital gains, and we're talking about this vehicle being a way to defer capital gains, um, not necessarily just avoid it per se indefinitely, but but to defer. Um, how does this work for state versus federal, you know, capital gains tax? Are you able to defer both? with this type of property transfer, or is this something that is specific to, you know, just the federal government? So most states, thanks, Nick, most states do follow federal. The one exception is Pennsylvania, but we don't see too many Pennsylvania transactions. Somebody selling in Pennsylvania is going to have to pay Pennsylvania no matter what they do. But every other state does follow federal on 1031. There are some slight state variations um, very slight crossing borders. Oregon, California, Montana have some slight uh, differences, if you will, in how long you can defer. But um, basically all states follow federal other than Pennsylvania. So defer federal and state taxes both. Okay, great, great, great. So just for those who are unfamiliar, um, you know, this could be 
pretty big advantage for them. You know, what's the approximate cost of a 1031 exchange? Great. The cost of an exchange, um, unfortunately for those of us in our industry, are quite nominal. Um, it grew up as an ancillary service. And so, frankly, very flat rate. I would tell you that exchange fees run from typically about a thousand to fifteen hundred, mm-hmm. all in. Wow, um, all in. That's a steal. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. just it's um, you know volume, volume, volume. Sure, <laughs> around yeah. here makes sense. And um, are people with entities? Maybe it's owned by an LLC or a corporation that owns the property. Are you allowed to do exchanges using entities, or is it just for individual owners that hold title that way? Any taxpayer can take advantage of 1031. So, yes, we do exchanges uh, for individuals, for trusts, for LLCs, partnerships, corporations, all of the above. They're all eligible. If they got taxable gain mm-hmm. in the sale, they're eligible for 1031. Great, great. So, and say you have a gain that's pretty substantial and maybe the replacement properties you've identified um, you know, are not going to consume that entire gain. You're able to keep some of the money correct, but that does come at, come at a cost? Well, yes, a partial exchange, and that's not uncommon for us to see, um, where they don't fully reinvest for whatever reason, and they just pay tax on whatever the shortfall is. So you will see in the literature out there about 1031 that you have to buy equal or up. That's not true. Um, if they're selling for a million, they're trying to hit a million, but if they come in at 950, they just pay tax on the 50,000 shortfall. And so if they come in a little low, they're going to be low or they're going to be high one yeah. way or the other. It's probably not going to be exact so, always. So. That's right. They're simply taxable on that shortfall. They're always taxable on it, but mm-hmm. it's still a wonderful exchange in almost every instance. Yeah. Wow. Sounds really flexible. Yeah. I would say this, that sometimes the client is proposing to do a partial exchange. Perhaps they want some cash out, you know, to run off to Paris or pay off the car or pay off their home mortgage. Mm-hmm. So... They want cash out. A partial exchange, we do have to explore a little further to make sure that they're not going so partial as to undercut the benefit of an exchange. The small differential is going to be a good exchange. Sometimes it's pretty substantial, and they don't always work out well. But that's the kind of question that we would be exploring in our office if we were on the phone with them. Well, and we we get clients um, quite a bit that have the idea that they're going to sell a property and then utilize all of their gain and just buy a property outright. Talk a little bit about having to take on some of the debt. Reinvestment rules are how I kind of label this. They do understand, most of them, that to get the best result in 1031, they would take all of the cash net after commissions and closing costs are paid. We're going to reinvest all of that cash into the replacement property. And they're often, my clients tend to be, many of them older, they're looking at retirement and they don't, they just want to take the cash and pay the, you know, do that into, into real estate. Well, there's a second reinvestment rule besides reinvesting the cash. And the second rule is, as I put it, reinvest the um, debt as well. So if they've sold a property that was encumbered, if they're selling free and clear, then they're only charged with reinvesting the cash, all of it, not just the gain, but all of the equity. But if they have sold a property that has a mortgage against it, then, in fact, they're supposed to go out and buy new property with new debt on it. The basic rule being reinvest the debt. Go out and get new debt of equal or greater. Spend the cash and reinvest the debt. And I would like to illustrate, illustrate this with the idea that they're selling for, you know, 350000 They have a payoff to the lender of 100 So they just want to take the two fifty cash and reinvest that back into real estate. Well, they can but then they're going to get taxed on $100,000 of debt relief. And I know that $100,000 did not go to them. It went to the bank. But 1031, and this kind of illustrates the um, fundamentals behind 1031 and why it's been in the tax code the 99 years. Our client is selling a property for three fifty. They have 350000 in the American real estate economy, be it rental or commercial or land, 350000 in the American real estate economy. Then if they don't want to pay these taxes on the gains and recapture, they need to drive back into the American real estate economy, three fifty. Um, if they take just the two fifty of cash and put that in only, two fifty back into the economy, as I put it, they've shorted America hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're going to have to pay tax on it. So, although it doesn't make sense to them, why do I have to go out and get a new loan of a hundred? Well, there's one exception: you don't need a new loan of a hundred, but then cash added in of a hundred. So, three two fifty of cash. Your one hundred of cash, so you're still back into the American real estate economy. Three fifty, 
good, but fundamentally they need to go all back, all in. They come in at 325, that's fine, but they'll pay tax in the shortfall, but it's cash. Plus, we have to take a look at the debt payoff to the lender. Yeah. And it, to me, I mean, that just seems like also just a good real estate practice, right? There's a lot of benefits that come along with debt in real estate as long as you're not over leveraged. Not over leveraged. And, that's right. You know, and yeah. so somebody who has substantial gains and if they are towards retirement or looking for that security, I mean, they don't have to uh, take on a tremendous amount of debt necessarily. And again, there are some some benefits you know, regarding that. So. That's right. Leverage does, you know, ex- grow what it is they can buy as replacement property, the cash and the leverage. So most of our clients are totally good with that. It tends to be my older client that's looking to get debt free. And I have to say 1031 is not a good way to get debt free, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I think that that's what you've talked about here is really one of the more poignant descriptions of a 1031 exchange and the purpose because you have this under tone of, you know, the rich get richer and the 1031 could be the evil to someone who believes that. At the same time, the reason that the policy is still in existence is because it is essentially an instigation for investors to keep money in the economy and continue to grow communities, continue to grow uh, and provide housing for tenants, provide businesses for individuals within those communities. And I, I mean, obviously, there's a there's an upside to that. The investor makes money, the American economy keeps growing, the communities are benefited from it. And, you know, I, I think that that's really an important element to this whole policy. It totally is. It is good for the American real estate economy, good for the American economy. In fact, I do get back to D.C. T- twice a year. Um, our industry, we get back there and we lobby. And what we're always having to explain to folks is why 1031 should remain in the tax code. And when we explain how it's good for the American real estate economy, they get it. New folks looking at it say, why aren't those people paying their tax? Well, once we explain to them how it is an incentive program to keep those dollars in that segment of the economy, they get it. And they have, you know, hands off. Uh, so for 99 years, we expect to keep it a few more. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hopefully. It, it makes sense, too, because real estate is a long-term investment strategy. And if people like the stock market, if they just bought and sold based on today's feeling or consumer confidence, if they did the same with real estate, you can imagine how volatile the real estate market would be, right? Right, right. Um, There were a couple uh, proposed modifications to the 1031 in this most recent uh, tax code. Do you know much about what they were proposing, what the thinking was behind that? Well, and I can tell you, so in TCJA, the more recent tax code changes, there was a change to 1031. Uh, Not pertinent to this particular conversation, but they did take 1031 away for personal property. Mostly that was capital assets for businesses, helicopters, airplanes, cranes, trucking equipment, uh, uh, rental cars were all being put through 1031s. And so under the tax code, we no longer can do 1031 for personal property, but we did retain it for real property. So for us, that was like one deal a month. In our office, we do probably 100 exchanges a month, and that was one deal a month because, uh, well, in fact, I will say this, that when they took it away for personal property, they did give these business owners uh, 100% expensing for a number of years. So they did give them something when they took that away, but it's still retained for real estate, which is, as you say, that long-term investments is not quick turnaround of a rental car. Right. So let's assume that there's an entity of some sort, an LLC with three partners, and two partners want the exchange, and the third partner wants to cash out but the property is in the name of the entity. Um, what's allowed in that situation? Uh, we've talked, I think, in the past about you know drop and swaps and timelines, some mm-hmm. partnerships. Tell us a little bit about that process. I like the scenario you gave me because I have an easy answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Very few have the easy answer. So what we have is an LLC that owns the property, and conceptually, the LLC sells, the LLC has to buy has to buy. The taxpayer that sells has to be the taxpayer to buy. Well, the good news in your scenario is that two of them wanted an exchange and only one did not. So what we would do in that circumstance is at just prior to closing, no sooner, just prior to closing, the one party that wants cash would come out of the LLC. This is work for their attorney and accountant. But with the work of the attorney and accountant, get the one exiting partner out. Then when we go to closing, two-thirds of the sale is under the name of the LLC, we do the 1031 for the LLC that sells two-thirds, and the LLC goes out and buys replacement property. And the one-third party 
at closing, they get their one-third share of the sale proceeds, uh, separate and apart from the LLC. So we've got to get them out prior to closing. That's the good scenario is when only one of them wants out. More complicated is when you say that two of them want out and just the one guy wants an exchange. And then I have to tell you that this breakup of partnerships, breakup of LLCs, right at the time of closing is problematic. Um, I know we were talking West Coast here in California. California's had a real problem, and it disallowed if there was a breakup, full breakup of the partnership right at closing. They disallowed that as an exchange. Technical answer or technical reason I won't go into right now. So what we want to do instead in that circumstance is we want them talking to ourselves, to their attorney, to their accountant well before listing So we want the listing agreement to be clean. I want them out of that LLC or partnership before they sign the listing agreement, before they they sign the purchase and sale agreement. So we need to strategize. And ideally, here's what we would do is here we are, let's say, in 2020. If they get themselves out of this LLC here in 2020 and then the sale of the property closes January 2nd, 2020. 21. Now, there's a whole bunch of work between those two dates. I won't drag you through all of that. But the breakup of a partnership or LLC right at the time of selling a property, which is, of course, the logical time for right. people to go their separate directions, it does take some advanced pre-planning. And there's about nine different solutions or ideas to, uh, to try, but none of them are good other than your first idea to stay in and one comes out then we've got a pretty easy fix for that right there yeah. you go so so that sounds like i mean really this is part of somebody's kind of due diligence process when they're going to sell so if they're even before they list even to have this discussion so that they can do the footwork at the beginning when they're not under as much pressure you know i say that they actually should be talking to us when they have half a thought in their head yeah. About 1031. It is part of their due diligence, and they won't have an, any idea, frankly, that this is an issue. Um, they got together to go in and buy that. They figure they can come separate and come out of it. Um, no, it takes a fair amount, a great deal of advanced planning to get them into the best possible situation. It also illustrates one of the reasons why I have been doing this work now nearly 30 years is uh, it's a fascinating area to work in. Although it isn't a legal practice, although I'm an attorney, we don't have billable hours in here. We're just doing the exchange work, but we get ourselves into tax law, 1031, Mm -hmm. real estate law, of course, business entities, we get into estate planning issues, family law issues, it all comes to bear at the time of a transaction oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's fascinating conversations to be held, and we do have the solutions and ideas that we have seen other clients utilize in that same circumstance. So when they have half a thought in their head is the time to call. It isn't premature. And again, although several of us in here are attorneys, um, there's no billable hours. There's no rate racking up. This is just information education when they first speak with us. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, if we have any, uh, I'm sure we do, we have, you know, real estate brokers listening, you know, if they're going to talk to a client and their client's mentioning even this concept, they should probably say, hey, you know, before we kind of go a lot further, you know, this is somebody you should be in contact with. So that way, when we do get to the stage where we're going to be, you know, putting the listing on the market, you've already jumped through all the hoops. So that sounds great. Yeah, exactly for the broker. I'll just say that if they go to our website, I think we'll provide that information later. We do actually have a checklist on there for brokers of what they have to do to stay out of trouble. <laughs> and uh, right. one of those points is that the ownership of the new property is supposed to match the ownership of the old. And so we try to alert the broker even. It's not really their exchange. It's not their responsibility. But we do have a short list for brokers. And we kind of hope they'll look at that and it'll be a heads up for them to get the client talking to us. Well, I'd, I'd even take that a step further, Nick. There, there was a, um, a lawsuit in California. There was an investor who sued the broker because they went to sell their property and the broker didn't advise them. They, they were essentially the broker was uh, marketing themselves as, as an investment specialist and oh, knowing investment yeah. properties. And then the broker said nothing about a 1031. Ouch. So they went to they sold the property looked around for another property, found one, and then realized through their CPA that they had a tax impact because they didn't do a 1031. So they ended up going back and, and suing the broker. Suing broker. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of liability there, but I think that that speaks to you know who we are uh, in the world as brokers, how we are classifying ourselves, and if we really are the specialist, even if we're not advising them directly, we put, the, put them uh, together with the people that do. That's right. I must say, on my checklist, step three is telling them to talk to us. <laughs> yeah. So first for the broker is spotting the opportunity, rental, commercial, or land. Mm-hmm. And step three um, is 
getting them talking to us. And we, t- we spoke a little bit too. Um, if So I, I put together some LLCs that have uh, self-directed IRAs as a partner. Okay. And that's not a disallowed exchange if the LLC is um, doing a 1031 exchange because obviously, and I'm clarifying and asking this is a question, in the event that a portion of that LLC is owned by a self-directed IRA, um, th- they can still participate, the LLC can still participate in a 1031, correct? We have done exchanges where there was a self-directed IRA inside. I'll say I don't know the IRA, self-directed IRA rules particularly, but I do know we've had exchanges where they were a member inside of this LLC. My work was up at the level of the LLC. The LLC sells, the LLC buys. Who those members were were not a particular issue for us. Perfect. Okay. And um, one of the fears that a lot of people have, because we have the bad deadline and also the good deadline, but deadline's just the same. Are is, any deadlines good? I just am curious. That's, you know, that's a very Maybe. good point. I like that one. <laughs> it could be worse. There are worse than good yes. deadlines. Um, but in that scenario, um, some folks say, well, can't I find a replacement property first and then go and sell my my property that would be yeah, called yeah, a reverse yeah. exchange. We talk reverse a little bit about exchange. that. Reverse exchange. That's right. I said yesterday in our office was reverse exchange day. So they definitely can find a replacement property first, then go back and list and sell theirs. There's not a prohibition against that. But uh, in my perfect world, we would just have the replacement property tied up, uh, pending sale of the relinquished. However, there are times when that replacement property is the to die for property. And the seller won't wait for the relinquished property to sell and close. And so our client is faced with buying this new property first and then selling the old property later. And the IRS will allow a reverse exchange. What they won't let our client do, however, is be the actual owner of both of these properties at the same time. So what happens in a typical reverse exchange, there's no such thing as typical, but let's pretend. Uh, In a typical reverse exchange, our company would go in and be the temporary owner of the replacement property pending the sale of the relinquished. We would have to be the owner of one of these properties. Now, when I said that the exchange fees are, you know, typically 1000 to 1500 that's for a forward exchange where we have paperwork in closing, and our paperwork in closing amounts to a fiction. We're pretending to sell their relinquished property, causes the money to come here. We're pretending to buy the replacement property. We turn the money around. In a reverse exchange, we lose the fiction. We literally are the owner of either the new, usually, sometimes the old, and then the fees are quite a bit more. And they'll get extra transactional costs as well in a reverse exchange. So when you add up the damage of our higher fee and extra transactional title insurance, sometimes recording fees, etc., I tell people they're frequently eight to ten thousand for commercial property my gosh with lender and lenders attorneys they can go higher but a a reverse exchange is going to be costly so we don't advise we don't really advise anybody but i wouldn't advise somebody doing a reverse unless they have gains of at least a hundred thousand that we can shelter Uh, you don't want to pay eight to ten thousand for a reverse exchange if the gains are twenty five thousand it wouldn't pencil Um, but if they have to buy first sell later We can do that, but the exchange company ends up being the temporary owner. I should also say this, that while we own their property, we do lease it back to them. So they do have full control. And, in fact, they collect and keep the rents off of the property. They service a mortgage if there is one. But we're the technical owner. It goes on our tax return. My CPA charges me. The fees are higher. So in that scenario, then, um, what's the financing situation? Do banks lend when you're the actual owner? And do you have to refinance out of that then? So will banks lend? It depends on what kind of property is being parked with the exchange company. Call it a parking arrangement. If we are talking one to four unit residential rental, no. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, those loans are made to individuals. Our company, if we're the owner of a duplex, we're going to own that in an LLC, of course, limited liability company. And so we're a nonconforming borrower for a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan. So one we're setting up this morning, our client isn't going to need financing. They've got cash to go in and buy the duplex. And so there won't be a lender. Then we can be the owner, and that works very well if they have all cash. Um, If they are doing residential rental, one to four unit, that does necessitate sometimes us being the owner of the relinquished property. We end up the owner of the old, while they then go to get financing, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, on the replacement property. If we're talking five units or more, we're into commercial loans, then the banks will work with us. They will allow the exchange company to be the temporary owner. Works quite well, frankly, if we're talking a commercial loan. But if we're in the one to four unit residential Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, 
the banks, your client's going to be looking for um, nonconforming, uh, you, you know, credit I, union sometimes, mm-hmm. seller financing, hard money um, for that kind of financing if we're talking one to four unit. Great. That, that's great information. Mm-hmm. Well, um, thank you all for joining us here. Uh, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Toya Butler to discuss how to implement the 1031 exchange and how you can utilize it to build wealth. Sleep Sound Property Management is a full-service, professional management company serving the Portland metro and Vancouver area. We give our clients back their most valuable asset, time. By delegating your property management, you'll be able to focus on what you do best while minimizing your liability and maximizing your return. Learn how we can help at sleepsoundpm.com. Okay, so we're back here with Toya, and we want to talk a little bit more about 1031 Exchange. But before we get into that, um, you know, you've mentioned this already kind of earlier on the interview here is you're not just a 1031 specialist, you're also an attorney. Can you explain um, how that might be important to your job and kind of what additional benefits that provides to your clients? Uh, yes, thank you. I think you can't have too many <laughs> attorneys, actually. <laughs> and when there's three of us in this office and a paralegal. Um, as I said, 1031 is tax law, it's real estate law, business entities, and on and on. So we really do have that technical expertise that we and the ideas and strategies that we have seen utilized with other clients. And we will talk about that. I think there are some exchange companies out there that, you know, what we're paid for and us as well, paperwork holding the money. Mm-hmm. And that's as far as they want to go with that because they certainly don't want to get into a position of liability. Well, nor do we. But, you know, we we have the answers here. We feel obligated to share those with folks. So it is an advantage to our client that's trying to figure out how to put this thing together. We will take that time with them. And for essentially the same fees as they would pay another exchange company. I mean, the client may disagree with me about too many attorneys, <laughs> but um, we do think that is an advantage to our client to have that kind of expertise. Okay. And, I mean, just so you know, we understand and the audience understands, I mean, can anyone be a 1031 specialist or does it take – are there certain restrictions? Is there licensing involved? Um, you know, how does really somebody go about, you know, in the public, go about selecting – a credible 1031 specialist? Yeah, great question. I would say of the 50 states, there's probably only about six of them that have any rules for exchange companies. For the most part, anybody can hang out a shingle and say they're a 1031 expert and start doing the work. Um, but we do have the heaviest of regulation here on the West Coast. California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho in particular, Nevada, um, does have some regulation of our industry. Mostly it's bonding and errors and emissions. they got to get E&O coverage and bonding. Uh, Idaho has a licensing requirement. And uh, Washington State, rather, Washington has restrictions about the banking arrangements for clients. And we comply, of course, with all of those uh, Mm -hmm. states because we work in all of those states. But for the most part, yeah, we do. We work across the country. um, But in most states in the country, there's no restriction whatsoever. So if your client is... um, looking for an exchange company, they certainly want to ask about the length of experience of that exchange company. And I think they should also ask about the volume of work that is undertaken by that company. There are exchange companies out there that do three deals a month, you know, 15 a year. And so they wouldn't have the depth of experience. But they do need to ask about the bonding, errors and emissions. And then I also think they need to ask about the banking. Uh, what we practice in this office is segregated bank accounts, for every single one of our clients. That's a lot of work for our banks. And furthermore, the banks have to send the monthly statement directly to our client. That's Washington regulation, and it is reassuring to our client that they don't have to take our word for it, that their money's sitting here. They will get monthly statements directly from the bank. So they need to find out how their monies are being held. Uh, Some companies, I believe, will do some pooling of monies. Mm -hmm. Not here. It's all segregated under the client's name and their Social Security number, so it's clear to the world whose money that is sitting there. Now, our client can't go in and access the money. That's prohibited. But they at least can see that it's there. Yeah. So, I mean, that actually kind of brings up an interesting question that I had not thought about, but I'm sure this exists in any profession, which is there are people who are doing exchanges that can mess it up for their clients. So somebody who's maybe not as qualified or experienced as your firm um, could make a mistake. Could you maybe give us an example of maybe a couple of mistakes that you've seen happen? Yeah, I sure can. I'm thinking of one now out of the Midwest where it was a, a 
small title company, and they held themselves out as an exchange expert, and they did exchange work. Well, there's something we haven't talked about called an improvement exchange, where they want to buy land and build on it, and that can be done. Well, that ex- that exchange company uh, didn't understand the rules, and so the client sold their relinquished property and bought the replacement property, the land, and then wanted to build on it. Like the reverse exchange, the taxpayer, the client, cannot be the owner of the dirt while the work is taking place. So what should have happened is when they went to buy the dirt, the seller would have transferred it to the exchange company in a parking arrangement like the reverse. And, in fact, uh, that didn't happen. And by the time the client found out that that was a misstep, they became a taxpayer, and then they sued the title company, and they did prevail against the title company that had held themselves out to have some expertise in 1031. You know, that's the first thing that comes to mind, the lack of experience, and that's why... You know, if they only do 15 a year, they simply cannot have had the volume to understand all the nuance of 1031. And it really takes three years in our industry before they can even take – we have an exam, a certified Mm. exchange specialist. It takes three years, and that's not too much time to try to get that nuance under their belt. And what in our office is a reasonably high-volume office. So – there is liability in this business. It's why we have E&O coverage. If we've made a mistake, we've got a policy there to help out our client who might have a tax bill. You know, there isn't very often that that happens, thank goodness. Yeah. So, and, and just kind of, so you said you have an E&O policy. Mm-hmm. Um, not all states require licensees to carry E&O depending on the type of license. Like, for example, in Oregon, um, you know, we have different a distinction between you know a broker's license and a property manager's license, and the property manager is not required to have ENO. Um, are, are you in your industry required to have ENO, is that, or is that something you've gone above and beyond and done for your clients? We are required by Oregon, California, Washington to have ENO, and Idaho as well. So we are required to have ENO. Okay. So we do, but mind you, if your client is coming out of Michigan or Florida or Texas, there is no requirement out of most states to even have the ENO. So. Just the way it is. And, and I understand that there are some fairly loose guidelines as to what those companies could do with the funds while they have possession of them. I, as I understand, there have been companies in the past that have put themselves out there as 1031 specialists and then um, utilize those funds in some type of investment fund and then the market crashes and then that 1031 money from their it's clients gone. is gone. Is it's that gone. correct? That's right. And we've heard of one of these off the East Coast again fairly recently. 400000 missing and the uh, former exchange company says they don't know where it went. <laughs> well, mm. in any case, so again, coming off of the East Coast, there's really no regulation back there about how the money is held. So yes, there have been folks that have borrowed the money out, or he doesn't know where it went, but others have borrowed the money out and, whoops, couldn't pay it back when the market went south. Uh, so... That's why the banking, I think, is as critical as anything, is that you know your money's sitting right where it belongs. Technically, the 1031 rules don't say where that money has to be placed. It's the regulation out of the states. We've tried to get national regulation of our industry in a couple of different ways, and we have been unsuccessful. Hmm. We're a small industry, and the SEC doesn't want to get involved, and the IRS certainly won't get involved, and so we have been unable to get any regulation of our industry nationally, state by state. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, the focus on the benefit has just been about deferring tax. But can you talk a little bit about how your clients are using this tool to kind of roll equity from one asset to another and just how they're using it maybe as a strategy over time? Yes, and I would say this kind of gets to my favorite topic or those creative results that we can get for clients. I will say, first of all, that 1031 – Our small business owner, I have to mention that for a moment here, a client that perhaps put a flooring, granddad put a flooring store in, you know, inner city, Mm -hmm. you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago when that's where flooring stores were, inner city, and car repair shops and that kind of thing. And so now the great-grandson owns the property, a great-granddaughter, and that's not where the customer base is located any longer, not in the inner city. Their customers are out in the suburbs. And so they would like to relocate the business from that inner city location out to the suburbs, maybe two different locations. And so our small business owner utilizes 1031 all the time to relocate strategically to be where their customer base is. Um, Car dealerships are always getting moved around from the old location to when everybody's in a different location. And so 1031 is instrumental for business owners, small business owners needing to make that kind of a move. 
Um, ranchers and farmers use 1031 all the time to relocate. They've got a far-flung 20 acres. Here comes an adjacent parcel available. They'd like to sell the far-flung property to acquire the local property, the nearby property. We also see, though, on an individual level, I think we've talked about the client that sells the one door to buy two doors. They sell the one door here to buy four doors in Alabama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. so they can build that portfolio elsewhere, you know. So, but we also see uh, mom and dad selling a property. They personally have no need for the money, don't wish to pay the taxes, but do have perhaps a son and a daughter. And it might be a nice way to help out the kids. And so we'll sell that one rental property. And these were not investors intentionally. It was by accident, right? Mm-hmm. That was the original primary residence in another city, another state, and they still have it. It's got all these gains, and now they're selling to the tenant perhaps. And so they, they buy two houses, one where one – child will reside one where the other will. And they'll be the tenant. Again, it has to be rental from the family member, at least for a while. So they'll oftentimes use 1031 as a way to help out that next generation. Um, We see folks that are selling a bed and breakfast. Guess what I've never seen in my 28 years? Buying a bed and breakfast? (laughs) And And I'm always concerned for my client who's selling a rental house to buy a bed and breakfast. Do they really want to do that to themselves? But they seem determined. Um, So we have them selling a bed and breakfast. They're not going to buy another bed and breakfast. They're ready for a different lifestyle. They'll use those monies to buy rental houses. Although one of my clients bought land adjacent to her new primary residence. She wasn't going to have any rent or tenant, no business over there, just land. That was the lifestyle she was looking for. Uh, But the gains were sheltered into the land. In any case, they can, again, as I say, very dramatically change their kind of holdings. They'll go out of a single-family property into fractional ownership of a mobile home park. I think you've mentioned mobile home parks before. Mm -hmm. Uh, My client isn't buying the whole mobile home park. They don't have the finances to do that, but they and two other Groups will get together and go buy one-third, one-third, one-third of a mobile home park. And so they come out of residential rental into mobile home park. Someday they may actually be able to own the whole mobile home park themselves, but initially they're going in in fractional ownership. So I'll also mention that are my older clients, um, as I say, many of our clients are in their 70s and 80s, and they don't want any longer to be in active management. And I would tell them to hire a property manager, for goodness sakes, you know, and then go live the good life. <laughs> But, right. <laughs> you know, but mom and dad are just not going to pay people to do what they've done themselves all these years, but they can't keep doing this. And so they will sometimes sell that, um, those, you know, single-family duplex, a few properties they have in their portfolio, and buy something called a Delaware Statutory Trust, DST, Delaware Statutory Trust, and that, too, is a form of fractional ownership, but it's passive so they don't have the – they own a piece of a medical office property in, you know, uh, Colorado and a piece of student housing in Ann Arbor and a piece Sounds of like an apartment a building. or something like that. It's They're... like a REIT. REITs don't work. These DSTs do. Mm-hmm. And they buy the DST from the same people that sell the REITs. They're, it's a security. It's a financial um, advisor has to sell those. So my older folks are looking for passive. They'll go that route. Alternatively, they could sell their portfolio of rental properties and go buy a Starbucks single tenant, triple net lease. They're not going to have to deal with the property mm-hmm, at all. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, many of my folks don't have the financial wherewithal to get into the Starbucks. So this fractional still gives them quality commercial property without the management headaches. There's pluses and minuses, of course, to the DST. But we do see people go into fractional, sell something they own fully to buy fractional interest is often a strategy they'll uh, at least explore. Nice. Now, how are you seeing clients on a long-term trajectory? I know that you have to plan this ahead of time, but utilize the 1031 exchange to convert their their investment property to a retirement home on the beach sometime, someday in the future. The most popular strategy we have in this office. Thank you for (laughs) bringing that up. Yes. Okay. So about a third of my clients don't even want more real estate. (laughs) That's what 1031 is about though, right? But they wouldn't mind. They wouldn't mind having, uh, if not a second home at the beach, then they want to retire to the beach or retire to Phoenix or retire to Maui, wherever. So 1031, again, is for rental. So we sell the rental here to buy the rental at the beach initially. Now, there is guidance from the IRS that tells us how much can they use the beach property and how much rental they have to have, and it has to be rental. When it's a vacation rental, the guidance is this. They do have to rent it out 
14 days in the first 12 months they own and 14 days in the second 12 months. And after that, they don't have to have any rental at all. 24 wow. months. Yeah, it's a good strategy. That's wild. It, isn't that? It's a game, but they have to play it if sure. they play the game. And then their wow. own use of the property is curtailed in the first 24 months. I'll give you the simple answer. It's basically 14 days of personal use in the first 12 months and 14 days of personal use in the second 12 months. After that, they stop with the rental and sell their current home tax-free. If they're ready to retire, sell the current home tax-free and move into the beach property and make that their primary residence. So it's a great strategy to get them to where they would like to live out those golden years. We do that all the time. I want to mention this also, though. So they say, well, we'll move over to the beach, and we're going to live there for a couple of years, and then we'll sell that one, too, tax-free. There's been a whole lot of changes in that arena, and they, it's still a great strategy, but there are some rules that we won't get into in this conversation that need to be followed. And I have to say this. They won't actually get out of that fully tax-free. They say, well, we're not beach people anymore. Why did we buy here? We should have bought in Phoenix. And now they want to make the move to Phoenix. They can make the move to Phoenix out of that property at the coast, but they will have some taxable income still. We can't fully shelter them. Even though they moved in and made it a primary, it won't shelter all of their gain. But it's still a great strategy to get them that location where they would ultimately like either just a second home um, eventually after 24 months of seasoning or perhaps even their retirement home. Hmm. It's a great strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a good – a lot of my clients when saying, okay, well, I've got to sell it at some point. I may as well just sell it and take the hit. So uh, my response is you can always 1031 exchange into something that you will love yes. at, at the end of your days. Uh, and then when you die, let it reset the base for your heirs, right? Well, woohoo for the heirs. Imagine that. <laughs> we'll Imagine <leave> them. that. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about some pitfalls or perhaps some of the mistakes an investor can make within this process. I mean, th- there are lots of things that can go wrong. Uh, we've talked about a few of them. Um, what are some things that you see in your industry being either the most common or the most um, – the habit having the largest impact that you can just warn some of our listeners here today. Yeah, so there's a few um, items that come up frequently with our clients disappointed when we tell them what the rule is. The first one we talked about earlier was the requirement for replacement debt. That is little understood. If you sold something with a mortgage, they need that new mortgage or cash added in. So requirement for replacement debt, number one. Secondly, where we get um, challenges on behalf of the client and where the audits might take place around um, the 45-day deadline. Yes, they do have to comply with that deadline, and it is in almost every instance just three on the list, as you said, and they have to buy from that list. And although audits of exchanges are not common, out of our office, maybe two to four a year, and it's almost entirely around compliance with a 45-day deadline, how do we know the client calls us and asks for the identification form? out of their file. And we do have a form we provide. They don't have to use it, but they mostly do. And it has three blank lines on it. And they can only list three. And they have to buy from that list. Well, how can they go wrong with the identification? Well, first of all, they want to do it over the phone and give me a list of over the phone. But no, no, it has to be in writing. Furthermore, it has to be signed. And they'll send us an email over the weekend. Well, their name typed on it. That's not a signature. We need a signature. Um, It has to be unambiguous, and that's really the biggest issue is unambiguous. They're moving fast on day 45, and they scramble, you know, transpose the digits of the address of the property. They might leave off the city and state. They give me an address of 2444 Main Street. What city would that be? What state? If we can see it by, you know, midnight of the 45th day, we'll get it fixed. But if we don't see it till day 46, we can't fix it. Mm. So that identification has to be accurate. And that is where the audits are taking place. And they're going to have to hand that form over if they get audited. Slim to none. It's not the exchange that triggered the audit. It would be something else. And the auditors are simply told that if you pulled a return for audit and it's got an exchange, get the taxpayer to prove compliance. So they have to buy from that list. Um, Let's see. Where else was it going to go with that? Um, Drawing a blank at the moment here. Related parties. Related parties. The basic rule is they cannot buy from a related party. They're supposed to get out on the open market and buy from – they can't go buying from grandma. They're supposed to get out on the open market and buy from unrelated party. Now, related parties are close. It's the parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, 
siblings. It's close. Not aunts and uncles and in-laws. No, it's close. But that related party issue comes up all the time, and we've been told by the IRS and California uh, that they go looking for related parties. Well, how's anybody going to know? My grandma has a different last name. Well. <laughs> Ancestry.com. That's all it's going to take. <laughs> Plus your tax return, because on the tax return, one of the questions is, did you you know, engage in a related party transaction? And you're going to have to just check the yes box, even if the last name is different. So related parties is something that we um, discuss with folks all the time. Um, let me think. Do they even need an exchange? Do they even need an exchange? I can get a ballpark idea of whether an exchange is beneficial to them or not based on a phone conversation, but really that answer comes from their accountant. Uh, Do they have enough gain to be concerned about? Uh, Do they have enough gain to warrant a reverse exchange, that kind of thing? How much depreciation deductions? How much have they taken in the way of depreciation deductions? So, and, even though I might see, oh, they got 75,000 of gain, ballpark. What we would never know, I or the broker for the client, is do they have any carry-forward losses from some other investment that did not go so well? Thank goodness things have calmed down on that front. It doesn't come up quite as often as it did for a while. But we would never know about losses in other investments. The accountant most certainly would. Mm -hmm. We do not send our client to the accountant for 1031 answers. Those folks don't do 100 exchanges a month like we do. Those are the deals we do. Half of what we talk about never turns into an exchange. Accountant doesn't see that volume. So they don't have the 1031 answers, but they do know if our client actually needs one or not. So they need to be talking to the advisor primarily for that reason. I think those are the main points where they get into trouble on 1031, the deadlines, the reinvestment rules. Uh, I would say, too, that partnership LLC issue we talked about earlier, the ownership of the new supposed to match the ownership of the old. Yeah. And if it's not matching for some reason, we need need to explore that. So I know that tax rates can be different state by state, but obviously there's a there's a federal and it's got some a range. What are you seeing because you do so many exchanges? What are you seeing as a a potential impact uh, percentage wise? In other words, if I'm paying state and federal for the sale in Oregon, I'm ballparking 30 Ballparking 30 in Oregon. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So lucky me, I'm this side of the river. And so our Washington clients, they don't have as much need for 1031 as our Oregon people do because Washington, tax-free state, they're only looking at whatever the federal rates are. But Oregon, you tack on that 9 to 10%. California, you tack on 13%, worst-case scenario. And frankly, Idaho has a tax rate. Montana does as well. So um, our clients in these high-tax-rate states – which many of us are in, uh, they are more motivated to do the 1031. If I'm talking to a client out of my, out of Washington State, frankly, and they have gain of 300000 well, they might have a tax bill of maybe $60,000. Eh, they'll just pay the 60000 and move on with their life. <laughs> but our Oregon client, are you kidding me? They're going to have $90,000. they are not going to pay $90,000. And uh, so uh, the high tax rate <laughs> works again well for folks situated like myself in Oregon and those folks particularly in California. And, and once you – this may be a tax advisor question, but once you sell a property in Oregon, you defer the tax into something in Wyoming that doesn't have any tax, you go – three years. Um, Are you filing an annual uh, form with the state of Oregon? Because at that point, you've got this uh, Oregon gain that you're responsible for for the years that you owned? The answer is yes. And uh, so Oregon learned from California. And, you know, we do look across the border to California, see what's going on down there. And then we kind of drag some of those ideas up here. So both California and Oregon require that the taxpayer file an information return um, each year. So even if our client sells the Oregon property and buys in Wyoming, and then they, they themselves move to Wyoming, so they're out of the state of Oregon fully, Oregon does require an information return every year reporting, yes, we still own Wyoming, yes, we still own Wyoming, yes, we do. And they are waiting for the day that the taxpayer says, oh, I sold that property here in Wyoming, and I had to pay Uncle Sam, and oh, and I got to pay Oregon. So Oregon does maintain a string attached to that out-of-state investment. Oregon follows federal for now. You don't pay tax to Oregon when you sell first and move the investment to Wyoming, but there's a string attached and a requirement for information returns every year for the rest of their lives, frankly. Same rule in California. Well, I'm waiting for Montana to catch on to that idea. So far, they're not requiring <laughs> those, but any day now. Excellent. Yeah, there's a string attached. 
Good, good. Well, uh, do you have any other insights that our investor audience should keep in mind and uh, when considering a 1031 exchange? You know, I'll go back to what I said earlier is that if somebody has half a thought about 1031, they need to call. And they won't necessarily even be able to formulate sentences. <laughs> I have half a thought about 1031. That's all we need to get started. <laughs> we have all the questions. And we really do like a thorough conversation as a starting point, And then we follow along with that client for days, weeks, months, years, until they're finally ready to go on the 1031. Uh, they have opened a line of communication with us. We are a resource for taxpayers looking at the strategy just as much as we are for attorneys in the largest firms here and CPAs and lenders and commercial brokers and res- anybody anybody that has a question about 1031 should feel free to call that really is the fun part of what we do in this office is um, again most of us attorneys all of us could have been is being a resource for the can I do this and how about that and what have you seen and what strategies and we will often have when they have a proposed challenge we will have a plan a and we'll have typically a plan b and we usually will have a plan c there might not be a plan d so if they didn't like a b or c we may have run out of ideas but we've got the ideas we share that freely it is the fun part of our work we get paid only if the client undertakes the exchange and as i said those are rather you know flat rate kind of nominal fees and competitive in our industry here so yeah i mean i mean from a dollar perspective it's just i mean the value is obviously there you know um so anyway, the, I'd like to move on to s- some more personal questions. Not too personal, but okay. we're going we're, we're gonna to step out <laughs> of extremely personal. Oh, I'm sorry. They're extremely personal. My apology. My apology. But we do want to get to know you a little bit better. And so, you know, we are both business people. You're obviously a, a businesswoman as well. And so we think about things and processes a little bit different. And as many of our investors are, they're entrepreneurs. They're running a business of investing in real estate. Is there an aha moment that you've had in the last year or so that's kind of changed your approach on some part of your career or your investment strategy or even your personal life? Well, um, no, not really. <laughs> my two youngest are still in college, so I'm going to be at this. Uh, my aha moment is I'll be here a few more years, <laughs> even after having done it 28. Uh, no, I mean, again, having done it for that many years, I, thank goodness, have lived through my aha moments <laughs> and I'm still here doing what we uh, continue to do. There haven't been any particular changes in our world other than we make sure to get ourselves back to D.C. and keep the message out there. There's a team of us in this office looking to do this work a little longer. And it sounds like you have a strong team that, you know, you guys support each other and just are uh, are really active in the industry. I think that's critical. We do try to stay out there for folks. Again, it is a little understood concept, a little known for our investors. Yes, our real estate professionals have, uh, you know, a passing acquaintance, but we do keep the word out there. New folks come into real estate investing. Uh, new brokers come in and just kind of keep the word out there that it is there and, you know, in the right circumstance, it really is. There's just nothing that um, any better than a 1031 exchange, frankly. Yeah. Now I get to ask a question, Matthew. Please, please um, do. Yeah. So, could you uh, tell us about an important ritual that you have and do every day? An important ritual that I yes, okay. I will say this: I start my morning off with jazz. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Nice. I can face my day if I have jazz music playing first thing in the morning. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's kind of ease into the day. It's That's the right way to start. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> uh, how do you measure success, Toya? How do I measure success? Well, I find this work to be very satisfying. Honestly, I don't do this work for the fees. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when my two kids are out of college, I'll do it for free. Or maybe not. But anyway, <laughs> I'm thinking about that. that. I remember that. <laughs> exactly. Asterisk right here. I find it very satisfying. And again, why have I done this for so many years is when we can help the client achieve the goal. So when we're on the phone with somebody, which is usually how we interface, they can come to the office if it's convenient, but it's almost all over the phone. If we can get them to whatever is their business goal or a personal goal, and it's about 50-50 in this office, which goal is more important. If we can get them to that personal goal or business goal and they don't have to pay these taxes, well, then I just think that's cool work to do. And I'm all about people. I'm not really about numbers, and I'm not a tax attorney. I'm a real estate attorney, right? It's getting folks to their goal, whatever that is. If we can do it in 1031, we can't always. And half the calls we get will not turn into a 1031 because we cannot achieve their whatever their compelling goal is. But if we can get them to the goal, that is just a great day for me. Yeah, I'm awesome. not kidding. 
Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? My grandmother's. Oh, <laughs> Having nice. become a grandmother myself, I get it now. My grandmother's, <laughs> who wouldn't have a clue about how they... They've been gone, you know, decades now. But how um, – and they didn't live nearby. But uh, how my grandmothers uh, taught me little lessons that brought me even to this work now. Business person. They were women. They were independent and strong back in the day. And um, how they did, in fact, leave, you know, uh, indelible mark on my life. Um, my grandmother's. Wow, that's a great response, yeah. and, and good that that impact is still shining through to this Absolutely. day, right? Absolutely. They would not have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to choose between whiskey or wine, which one would it be? Oh, wine. <laughs> Easy. That was quick. Oh, I can't do whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> wine, no question. Not a problem. White, kind of, and not even a quality just a cheap white. Whatever <laughs> works. A, box, a boxed <laughs> white. stayed around here. We a box is perfect. That's true. That's a volume game as well. So, <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Toya, you know, we really want to thank you for coming in today and spending some time with us. Um, you know, how can the audience get hold of you um, or view your information? Yes. So I would recommend they go to the website. and We have a nice uh, way to contact us through the website. And, of course, the spelling of my name is a bit challenging, but it's, of course, Butler. B E U T L E R B as in boy E U T as in Tom L E R Exchange Group dot com. And there we've got a great ten thirty one library with many of these topics in about a one page format, quite readable. There's those checklists that I mentioned, the short one for a broker, a longer one for our investor client. We send these checklists out all the time to people so they have a roadmap in front of them. And then there's a great way to contact us there on the website. And a phone call to this office is really um, our preferred method of communication. We can be very thorough in a phone conversation. It's not a waste of our time. And again, it's education. There's no billable hours in any of that so a visit to the website perfect great well thank you so much for joining us today if you find this show valuable we have two favors to ask the first please subscribe to our podcast and the second would you give us a review the more subscribers and the more reviews we have the better the show the better the guests and until next time invest in the west